0: Not too long ago, the world got together in a massive effort to address global warming. Politics aside, a significant part of that effort is coming from worldwide industries. For the production of cement and construction, this meant reducing carbon dioxide emissions. Today, we're speaking with Rick Bohan, Vice President of Sustainability at the Portland Cement Association. PCA is the premier policy research, education, and market intelligence organization serving America's cement manufacturers. And just recently, early October 2021 to be exact, the PCA made their roadmap to carbon neutrality available to the public. I'm Jonathan, and this is Digging Deeper. What brought you to cement? What brought you to the PCA Uh, and eventually researching sustainability?
1: Yeah, actually, I kind of like this story because... um... I was in consulting engineering for years, and uh, I just got bored. And a position opened up at PCA, and at the inter- and I really didn't know too much about PCA at the time, but at the interview, they said, "We're looking for an engineer that doesn't want to do engineering anymore." And I said, "Bingo, that's me, And uh, I've been at PCA ever since, um, not quite 30 years. And as far as sustainability, You know, truthfully, everything that I've been doing in my professional career has focused on sustainability, but we didn't call it sustainability back, you know, 30 some odd years ago. So, and it ties in with our roadmap. Two real basic concepts. One, intentionality. Really thinking long and hard about what we build, where we build, how we build, and especially from a consulting engineering background, I brought that with me. So intentionality. And then the second part was optimization. So how can we do this better in terms of a product or a process or a technology or for that matter, even a workflow? And again, I brought that from consulting and I found that that really dovetails very nicely with sustainability, in particular within the construction sphere. So that's how I came to PCA, and it's been a great ride.
0: Well, it kind of sounds like you're still doing uh, some engineering, just not directly. It's more behind-the-scenes engineering, if you will.
1: Yeah, it's well, all engineering ultimately is problem-solving. I mean, I think it was A.M. Wellington. He was a civil engineer back in the early 1900s. And I think he's the guy that I won't get the quote exact, but he basically said, you know, an engineer, an engineer is a guy who can solve a problem just a little bit more cost effectively than anyone else. There might be some truth to that. So, yeah, I, I'd like to think engineers, though, are ultimately problem solvers.
0: Yeah. You mentioned that uh, about 30 years ago, we didn't call it sustainability, but then. Um... Things change, modern times, they they are a coming. <laughs> um and then suddenly, I think it was like 2015, 2016, the Paris Agreement seems to have set everything off. Um, are these roadmaps um, the response to those, to that agreement and how industries plan to reduce global warming? I believe the um the goal is something like. Decreasing global warming by like two degrees centigrade by 2050.
1: Yeah, so a couple of things. Firstly, you're right. We didn't call it sustainability. Back then, if you think about sustainability, I mean, people look at the three, three uh, legs of that people, profits, planet. And 30 years ago, um, those were all kind of siloed. They were isolated and they really weren't together. And I would say over the past 30 years, certainly, and partly because of the Paris Agreement, but also just a general awareness among, the, among society, those three legs of the stool have become intertwined and people realize you can't have one without the other two. So that's, and, and this really goes into our roadmap in terms of looking at two things. Firstly, Um, society needs concrete. It's a universal building material. We, we know that I tell people, look, even if you're building a log cabin out in Wyoming, you're going to use some concrete like it or not. And likewise, concrete needs society. And by the way, I wish I could take the credit for that quote. I heard it from somebody else though, but by, by that, I mean, concrete needs society. And, and by that, what I mean is that for us to reach carbon neutrality, we really have to have everybody who touches concrete involved in our roadmap and involved in that process. So our roadmap, we're looking at an entire value chain. We call it the five Cs, clinker, cement, concrete construction, using concrete as a carbon sink. But realistically, everybody that touches that value chain has a role to play so people of course at the plant whether it's a cement plant or a concrete plant yeah they got a role to play but people in construction and that means the people that are building the people that are doing the build but also the designers the architects the engineers people that operate those buildings and If you think about it, all of society, because essentially we're all using concrete to one degree or another, either as a user, a consumer, a buyer, an owner, you know, fill in whatever job title you can think of. We all have some level of involvement with that value chain. And because we do, we're asking people, hey, step up, help us reach our goal of carbon neutrality.
0: Yeah. I heard the, the quote, um, society needs concrete, concrete needs society. Um, I, I, I first heard that I think it was last week or a week and a half ago at the GCCA right. conference, virtual conference. Um, and I wrote that down immediately. I was all like, yeah. this is so good.
1: It is. It's a, it, it really is. And it really encapsulates what we're trying to do with the roadmap because, you know, again, uh, A lot of people, I think, put a target on building materials. And I think that's really short-sighted because there's a a, a much larger discussion to be had. Let me use, and let me just use one example. I talked to, uh, I point to the Empire State Building. Incredible as it may seem, the Empire State Building is now coming up on 100 years old. And I tell people, Think about all the energy over a hundred years that went into escalators, elevators, boilers, children, chillers, air handling equipment, workstations, display screens, um, you name it. And even today with all their energy efficiency improvements, I believe that that building still uses more electricity in a day than like 10,000 individual homes. Now, If you compare that energy consumption to the energy that went into the building materials or the building of the building itself, there's no comparison. So a roadmap, we try to focus, uh, get people to focus not just on building materials and that carbon footprint, but take a very holistic approach. Look at the entire building over its entire lifespan and if you if you take a step back and say, you know, okay, this may be around hundred years. How can we design this? How can we use this? How can we operate it so that we can really optimize everything across the board? And oh, by the way, also optimize tenant experience so that they have fresh air and daylighting and et cetera, all those things. I think that's. That's a real key part, and, and again, we've folded that into our roadmap as well.
0: Yeah, if we could do like a like a thought experiment and just skip forward into the into the future with you know Doc Brown and jump into our DeLorean, what do you think concrete will look like in twenty fifty after all all of this work has been
1: done? That's a great question. So a, a few things. Um, I think, firstly, how concrete is manufactured will be different. I think how it's delivered will be different. Today, we're seeing primarily diesel trucks and ready-mix trucks. I don't think you'll see that. I think 30 years down the road, you're more likely to see at least compressed natural gas, but more likely, I think you're going to see zero-emission vehicles. I'm in Chicago and in Chicago we've got one producer who has shifted entirely to compressed natural gas. That's a transitional fuel. I think you'll see more and more vehicles going to electric. It takes a while to change over an entire fleet. And I can tell you there are rail carriers looking at switching from diesel electric locomotives to all electric. So that would be the first change. The second change is the material itself. I think we'll see increased use of industrial byproducts of uh, fly ash, slag and silica fume. And a lot of people push back and they'll say, well, Rick, I, you know, fly ash seems to be limited. I don't buy that. We are now seeing companies that are processing impounded, stored and um, uh, landfill fly ash. And they can do that economically, environmentally, in a environmentally sound manner and efficiently. There is so much fly ash that has been stored over the past decades that even if you thought, even if, it, even if only 5% was ultimately usable, we have plenty of that material. But there's other materials. I also think we're going to see a dramatic shift, and this will be, I think, within the next five to 10 years, where Portland limestone cements will be you know, much more universal than they are now. Portland limestone cements, really, and I I use the analogy, the difference between a Portland limestone cement and today's traditional cement is like the taste difference between Coke and Coke Zero. There really is no difference. Likewise, there's no difference in the performance between um, Portland limestone cement and a traditional cement. You can get the same durability, the same strength, And yet, by using a Portland limestone cement, you can uh, decrease your carbon footprint by about 10%. So I think, again, within the next five to 10 years, we'll see that just a dramatic improvement. And by the way, we now have cement plants that are switching entirely to Portland limestone cement. So that on on the material side, then when you look at the delivery and how concrete is placed, I think the future is just wide open. I think 3D printing has a role to play. Uh, I don't think that's 10 months from now, but I think within the next 10 years, you'll see some specialized applications for 3D printing. I think you'll also see a lot more focus on the use of um, what's called augmented reality. So immersive reality and virtual reality. Uh, if you add those two together, you get augmented reality. And it, that's in the design phase. That's available to designers today. And don't laugh. But I think that's a technique that will actually make change orders obsolete. And I, I kid you not, I really think that has tremendous potential. The other thing I think you'll see, yeah, the other thing I think you'll see is, a lot more influence of artificial intelligence and machine learning. You know, today people can bring up a concrete mix design on a computer screen. I think in the future, that's not how we're going to be doing it. I think people will be dialing in the characteristics they want, not just strength and durability, but really technical issues like, well, how much, re- um, how much permeability do we want? How much porosity do we want? And I think they're going to be using the right materials for the right application, and they're going to get the performance they want. And I'll just leave you, uh, one of the things that I I harp on, it's crazy, but today there are still producers that, um, there's institutional inertia. So the example I use, the concrete sidewalk outside my house has probably the same strength. As a concrete and an interior column of a high rise, that's crazy, but I understand why that happens because you know people just get set in their ways, and it becomes a real simple thing to do. We're gonna use mixed design A through you know just a, and that'll be for the first ten floors and B for the next ten floors. Or we're gonna use mixed design A for this street, and oh, let's just keep it the same. Look, my sidewalk in Chicago doesn't need the same strength as an interior column of a high rise, but it probably needs far more durability than that interior column of a high rise. And likewise, you know, the opposite is true for that interior column. So again, this goes to the point of being intentional. And we, we tell people you've got to really take a step back because I think we inadvertently overdesign. We're not asking people to cut corners or to take risks. We are saying you have to switch from this institutional inertia that's out there to incentivizing innovation. What I see a lot of is people who have been taught one way and then for 20, 30, 40 years, they get in a comfort zone. Well, you know what? The planet can't wait. So even today, I turn to the kids that are coming out of college and doing some of this cutting edge research. And I'm still learning as an engineer how to optimize, not just optimize the materials, but optimize the building, optimize the building process and really think intentionally about it. If a building is going to last decades, we should really plan for that and think about, okay, if we're building a building today, let's say that's going to be assisted living facility, what might it be 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now? How can we optimize that structure? Yeah. And again, I just keep harping on intentionality and optimization.
0: Not to mention like the location of that building you if if you're going to have this app to give you a artificially intelligently designed concrete mix you're going to have to type in where this structure is going to have to be because then it's going to have to take in you know all, all of the environmental factors in there and that's like it's just too much to handle as a as a typical human even though we're just already doing it today it's just right to be smarter
1: right and what one of the things that i think has to change too is we have this sequential process where you have the owner sits down with the design team the design teams comes up with it that that's really not a very effective approach you have to have a team approach where everybody is invested in the final product i use the analogy i'm a big f1 racing enthusiast And there is gold foil tape that they use in F1 racing that is heat reflective. It's really pricey. So a two foot wide roll that's 150 foot long costs about 3200 bucks. It's pricey. So if you think about it, if that was coming out of your pocket, you'd really think long and hard about how much of it you used, where you used it, how you used it, when you used it and maybe most importantly, who actually applied that gold reflective tape. That to me isn't being very intentional about its use. Likewise, I think we have gotta be very intentional about cement and concrete. And one of the frustrations I have is, you still have people that refer to concrete as, when is the mud coming? What? It's not mud. You're talking about a space age material that is the solution to some of the worst. You know, it's a solution for climate mitigation for the buildings we are building today to address climate change. It's a solution in terms of uh, being used as a carbon sink over its lifespan. I mean, you know, I, I think that's a it's a big miss. So, whenever I hear that, I just kind of, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard to me. <laughs> you, I think you've
0: probably shaken up uh, at least three, four, five different beehives of ideas um, fly ash, uh, having new alternative fuels for uh, concrete mixed trucks. And, um, A a number of other other things that I don't think we have time to get to. (laughs) I'm certain everybody (laughs) listening is like, oh, yeah, let's talk about that for a little while, because I personally would love to see what Tesla's version of a ready-mix truck looks like, because it's going to be weird
1: looking. (laughs) Well, and here's the thing. This stuff is not pie in the sky. This is just around the corner. So, whether it's carbon capture at a cement plant, whether it's potentially using hydrogen as a fuel, which would really be a game changer, using alternative fuels. And, and by the way, I, I go back to that quote concrete needs society. So, a lot of these solutions are available today, but we need policymakers to recognize that they're available and to help us help them. Because in a lot of cases, you know, we've got a regulatory environment and a a public awareness environment where people just need to be educated to, to show them, look, there is a real path forward. And I tell people, sure, we're targeting 2050. Can we get there sooner? Yeah, I think we can. And there's no reason why we shouldn't with the right policies that are put in place and our roadmap. We've identified, I call it the big 10, 10 real primary um, policy drivers that, that would really help us out. And we've been meeting with folks on the Hill and, and folks with the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection Agency, again, as concrete needs society, right? So government and policymakers and the public, they all have a role to play. They can all support us and all engage with us to get to that goal
0: yeah but i want to come back to the 1990s just for a brief moment um because i i know a statistic has been said that we the cement industry um has already reduced carbon dioxide emissions or the impact by like 20 percent since then um can you point to like what has been happening to cause that and if we're already doing that work does that kind of plateau if we don't put more effort
1: into the things that you mentioned sure so it's a great question and let me let me answer that last part first we are really close at the cement plant to the limits of theoretical efficiency and by that i mean we're we're facing only marginal increases in efficiency so The more energy we put in, the tougher it gets to get that additional unit of energy efficiency. But that doesn't mean we can't try. And I think barring revolutionary advances in technology, it's going to get tougher and tougher as we get close to 2050 to get those increases. Now, I do think those increases are going to be primarily in terms of fuel efficiency. And that goes to the first part of your question. You know back in the day um fuel was less expensive but it was still a significant component of cement manufacturing today fuel costs are a significant portion and we were very sensitive to that but more importantly it's not the cost it's the environmental footprint of those fuels so We are squeezing every unit of efficiency out of every unit of fuel. And that's why I say potentially switching to a fuel like hydrogen would be a tremendous game changer. But the other point is we're targeting 50% alternative fuel use by the year 2050. Alternative fuels today are widespread throughout Europe. As a matter of fact, there are more than a dozen cement plants in Europe that are operating on 100% alternative fuels. We could do some of that here in the US with the right regulatory environment, but there are actually disincentives and they're unintended, but there are disincentives for us to switch to increased alternative fuel use. So in a lot of cases, what we're seeing is that potential alternative fuels end up in a landfill where if they're organic materials, they'll decompose, they'll generate methane, which is far more destructive in terms of global warming than CO2. So as we look at the cement plant, the fuel efficiency, um, and then the chemical fact of life, people don't realize just over 60% of our CO2 footprint comes from transitioning calcium carbonate driving off the CO2. We call it a chemical fact of life because if we don't do that, we don't make cement. It's just that simple. Well, to do that, you've gotta have temperatures, you know, 2700, 2800 degrees Fahrenheit. Right now, the only way to get those temperatures is with combustion. And by the way, surface temperature of the sun in comparison, 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's a great environment to use alternative fuels and and materials that otherwise would end up in a landfill wow
0: i want to get to um the pca roadmap um but i want to like start at the creation of it um the reason why it was created in the first place Uh, where does the action come from like Is there a single association that said, hey, everybody needs to make a roadmap now? Or is this like a worldwide joint effort that everybody's like, we're gonna do this, this is what we're gonna do?
1: Yeah, so so it's a great question. And much like the development of sustainability, the genesis of this goes back to the 1970s even, where you had issues of fuel efficiency and you had the energy crisis and people started to realize, you know what? There will be a day when energy isn't going to be as abundant as it is back, you know, before the days of the energy crisis of the 1970s. Well, so that was a driver, but you also had the driver of the environmental movement and people realized, you know what? We can do better and there's no reason not to do better. And that became another driver. And I think the confluence of energy, environmentalism, and then just greater societal awareness of we have a great product that is a solution rather than a problem. I think those three things have been coming together. I'm dating myself, but I think since probably the late 70s. And I think they came to a confluence when the IPCC first came out with their initial report and we've gone through several rounds. But I think, you know, as people became more aware of the global warming crisis, you know, everybody started to say, okay, well, are we gonna be part of the problem or part of the solution? And the cement industry very early on said, hey, we can be part of the solution. So that really accelerated, I would say over the past, just couple of years where people said, okay, well, if we're going to be part of the solution, let's not just do this as one-offs with individual companies. Let's attack this as an entire industry. So the PCA made the made the commitment um, roughly a year ago, where we said, let's do this for the U.S. Now, we weren't the first. SEM Bureau and uh, which is the European Cement Association. VDZ, which is a German cement association, GCCCA, GCCA, the Global Cement and Concrete Association. Cement Association, of Ca- it seems like everybody kind of came to that same conclusion, and in part because the ownership of so many of the cement companies is international. So it wasn't like a light bulb went on in North America that triggered a light bulb over here. You had the same light bulbs going on at the same time in different boardrooms. Anyway, a couple of points. First, the roadmaps have a lot of similarities. Our roadmap and STEM Bureau in particular, we're using a value chain approach. That said, the roadmaps are all unique. And by that, I mean, what we're doing in the US has to respond to the market conditions, the regulatory conditions, and the societal awareness in the U.S. and what they're doing in Europe has to respond to the market conditions of the EU, the regulatory conditions of the EU and the societal awareness of the EU. It's neither better or worse, they're different, just like the U.S. and Canada are different. So the Cement Association of Canada will be releasing their roadmap shortly, and we're not doing this in isolation. So folks in the Cement Association of Canada, they participate ongoing discussions with us. Folks in the um, uh, in CEM Bureau and the European countries and Global Cement and Concrete Association, they participate in our efforts. And likewise, we participate. It's cooperative. It's collaborative. It's collaborative you know, coordinating our efforts. And basically it's a peer review process so that we all get the best roadmap possible for what we need in our particular region.
0: I'm going to pause us right here. We have a lot more to talk about. So join us for part two as we continue our road trip with the PCA and get further into the details of the roadmap. Thank you to Mr. Bohan and the Portland Cement Association for taking the time to talk with us. Tune in soon for another episode of the Digging Deeper podcast by ForConstructionPros.com. Make sure to subscribe and share. Until next time, stay safe out there.